Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Nicole, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Current Perspectives on Early Stage Breast Cancer. This is such an important call. It's, it's actually a program that we do not offer that often, and I would hope that we would offer the, 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 this program on early stage breast cancer more frequently. I'm going to try to do that over the next year. It's so important. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as many, many other breast cancer organizations. Um, and it's because of that collaboration and all of your interest in this in, in incredibly important topic in terms of so many women are diagnosed early stage that we um, have over 774 participants on the call today, and you come from all of the United States, and we have international participants from Canada, the United Kingdom, and Venezuela, so it's a bit of a global call as well, and we really uh, appreciate your taking the time to be on this call today. Now, today's program is supported by Genomic Health, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. Now, we have the best speakers on this program today, so I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Jenna Rosa Grana. Dr. Groner is Medical Director, MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper, Division Head, Hematology and Medical Oncology, the Cooper Health System, and she's also a Professor of Medicine, Cooper Medical School at Rowan University. And Dr. Groner is going to address overview of early stage breast cancer, the role of precision medicine in early stage breast cancer, and current standard of care. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Groner. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm going to be talking briefly about, again, early-stage breast cancer, and I'd like to begin by saying that the definition of early-stage breast cancer is disease that's limited to the breast and or the axillary region. Ideally, the management of early-stage breast cancer is a multidisciplinary one that includes the surgeon, the medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist, but also other individuals such as nurse navigators, genetic counselors, behavioral health experts, social work, et cetera, so that the plan that is put together for the woman is one that takes into account input from all of these specialists. The key decision to be made early is whether surgery is done first, which is typically uh, the way breast cancer that is early is managed, or whether chemotherapy or hormone therapy should precede the surgery. We call that preoperative therapy or neoadjuvant therapy. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But again, typically, uh, the surgery is done first, the diagnostics are done, surgery is done next, and then the woman follows up uh, with the rest of the team to make decisions about treatment. I'm not going to talk about today ductal carcinoma in situ or stage zero breast cancer because that's an entity that's uh, a, a whole lecture all by itself. And I'm really going to try to focus on stage one, stage two, and three disease. Traditionally, treatment decisions for breast cancer were made based on uh, pathology features, tumor size, nodal status, uh, were lymph nodes under the arm involved, and if so, how many? tumor features. Uh, what is the grade of the cancer? What's the estrogen, progesterone, and HER2-new status of the cancer? 
but also patient features. What is the health of the patient? What other health conditions does the patient have that may affect the treatment decisions? And also patient choices. Uh, are there particular issues uh, that are going to influence the uh, decisions regarding drugs or even surgery that are dependent on that patient's uh, choice? To begin, we think of estrogen, progesterone, and her 2 these proteins that are expressed by the cancer cells um, differentially as very important markers that help us in the decision-making. In reality, when we talk about targeted therapy or precision therapy, uh, ERPR and her 2 new were the first targets of targeted therapy, and drugs targeting these proteins were the first of the drugs that we think about as precision medicine in some ways. Uh, so a lot of discussion about the management of early-stage breast cancer comes back to the features of the cancer, and we'll come back to these three markers. Now, um, Precision medicine in 2017 is uh, very interesting. Um, precision medicine is the concept that you will look at features of the cancer, genetic profiles of a cancer that can help guide decision-making. Uh, a lot of work on precision medicine is going on today in metastatic disease, but in early-stage breast cancer, we actually are using precision medicine. Tumor is submitted for analysis, and based on the gene expression pattern, decisions regarding treatment are made. And these tools that are part of this process have become very commonplace. You've heard of them um, as Oncotype DX, Mammoprint, Breast Index. These are tools that are part of this precision medicine armamentarium, and they're now being integrated into national clinical guidelines. So, for example, Oncotype DX, which is used, it's a test that is submitted in women who have lymph node negative disease, that is estrogen receptor positive and HER2 negative, um, is commonly used to make decisions for a woman. Uh, it's being evaluated today in women that are lymph node positive. It's also approved in women who have DCIS to help make decisions about radiation. Uh, and the reality is that the Oncotype DX can be used as a tool to determine if a woman could be treated with hormone therapy alone or whether she needs chemotherapy and hormone therapy. Mammoprint is a similar type of test that can give us similar information. The breast index is a slightly different test that can uh, be used to help decide if a woman should consider longer duration of hormonal therapy, 10 years versus five, although there's still a lot of debate as to whether the breast index should be fully integrated into this plan. There are other tests that are to come that follow that same line. So an example of an oncotype uh, is really in the node-negative population, where if the oncotype score is low, the woman gets hormone only. If high, she gets chemotherapy plus hormone. And if it's intermediate, we actually have problems with that because we still have no clear-cut uh, recommendations and often have to do a lot of independent discussion with the patient. There's a lot of debate about that. So let's move forward to the current standard of care. And I would really like to bucket the current standard of care of early-stage breast cancer into uh, three big categories of disease. Uh, 
The first is what typical, uh, typically is called triple negative disease, cancer that's estrogen receptor negative, progesterone receptor negative, and HER2 new negative. This, we think, is a disease that needs particular attention. It's slightly more aggressive in its behavior. Chemotherapy is the only strategy that is recommended for these patients in addition to whatever surgery and or radiation may be needed. And chemotherapy is recommended if the cancer is larger than six millimeters of, uh, of disease. Uh, so again, this is a, an entity where chemotherapy is needed, no hormone therapy is indicated, and the chemotherapy regimens that one would use vary depending again on the factors of the woman's health, her choices, and the, the risk of the cancer. Regimens such as adriamycin, cytoxin followed by taxol, taxotere and cytoxin, um, there's a lot of uh, interest in looking at the role of platinum compounds in triple negative disease, so much more is likely to come in the future. The second uh, category of cancers that I'd like to at least mention is the HER2 new positive cluster of cancers. Really, these uh, doesn't matter the ER or PR. What really is critical for these is the HER2 new status, the overexpression of this HER2 new protein. Chemotherapy is largely recommended with Herceptin, plus or minus a new drug called pertuzumab, if a woman has a cancer that is uh, of a certain size. Uh, most people say that six millimeters or larger is the size that we begin to think about Herceptin. And again, pertuzumab is not usually added until the cancers are slightly larger than two centimeters or lymph node positive. The chemotherapy regimens vary. Some people use Taxol and Herceptin alone, uh, Taxotere, Carboplatinum with Herceptin, Taxotere, Carboplatinum, Herceptin, and Progetta. Lots of variability, but clearly HER2 new positive disease is a very good uh, disease to have in some ways. It's very responsive, and the drugs are very, very targeted and, and useful. And finally, the last category that I want to mention is the group of cancers that are hormone responsive, usually estrogen receptor positive, but could be progesterone receptor positive, and HER2 new negative. This is probably our largest group of patients. Uh, here, the decision-making revolves around whether the woman is lymph node negative. If she is, we use tools such as Oncotype or Mammoprint to decide on the role of chemotherapy. While if she's no lymph node positive, uh, chemotherapy plus hormone therapy is often recommended, although, again, there are studies that are looking at the role of Oncotype uh, to help us make decisions in that population. The hormone therapies for this population of patients vary significantly. If the woman's premenopausal, tamoxifen can be used, or you can offer her ovarian suppression or ovarian removal along with a hormonal drug. While if a woman is postmenopausal, aromatase inhibitors are typically chosen. Many questions remain. Um, how long do you give hormonal therapy for? There's data on five years, now data on 10 years. How do you sequence them? Do you begin tamoxifen and then an aromatase inhibitor? Uh, do you do two and a half followed by three. Uh, again, there's some uh, variation and a lot of questions still being asked, but in the woman who's hormone responsive, the hormones are a key element. 
And finally, I'll stop by uh, something that others will, I'm sure, discuss, which is the use of bisphosphonates or bone-strengthening compounds that are now being uh, recommended in women that don't have metastases but uh, are being recommended to maintain bone health and also to potentially benefit in terms of less recurrence. So I think we've made tremendous strides in early-stage breast cancer, and uh, we can answer more questions at the end. So I'll stop here. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grant. That was really outstanding and just a really wonderful overview of early-stage breast cancer, its treatments, um, and really uh, wonderful to have you on for the Q&A because I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Lisa Newman. And Dr. Newman is Director of the Breast Oncology Program for the Multi-Hospital Henry Ford Health System, or HFHS. And she's also founding medical director for the HFHS International Center for the Study of Breast Cancer Subtypes. Dr. Newman is an, a breast oncology surgeon, and Dr. Newman is going to address the role of surgery in early stage breast cancer, types of surgery for early stage breast cancer, and how clinical trials contribute to treatment options. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Newman. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. I really appreciate the opportunity to participate in this educa educational teleconference program. Now, as Dr. Grana has already mentioned, most patients with early-stage breast cancer will undergo surgery as their initial step in treatment of the cancer. And over the next few minutes, I will therefore try to explain the rationale for how we develop the surgical treatment plan and how this planning is integrated with the therapies that are delivered by my medical oncology and radiation oncology colleagues in breast cancer. So once an invasive breast cancer has been biopsy proven, we typically need to ensure that the surgical plan addresses three basic principles. The first principle is the most straightforward, and this is the principle that we have to adhere to regardless of whether we are dealing with a cancer in a woman's breast, a cancer in the colon, a cancer in the skin. This is the principle that you want to rid the body of that cancerous growth, and this is the reason why the very high majority of breast cancer patients need some surgery as at least one component of their care. The second principle is a little bit more specific or unique to cancers that we do find in a woman's breast. And this is the principle that we do need to treat the entire breast. Treating the entire breast is critical because in probably more than 50% of breast cancer patients, there are microscopic amounts of disease, microscopic cancer cells hiding in completely normal-appearing breast tissue and breast tissue that is, appears normal on imaging such as mammograms. So it only makes sense that you want to make sure that you do whatever is possible to uh, reduce the chances that those hidden microscopic areas of disease will continue to grow and then potentially turn into other cancerous lumps or other cancerous problems detected on future mammograms. The third principle of a breast cancer surgical treatment planning is that you want to make sure that you have comprehensively staged the breast cancer. And staging of breast cancer not only depends on evaluation of the actual cancerous lump, but it actually depends on evaluating the lymph nodes or the glands of the underarm area. And these, the lymph node information 
is really critical, Dr. Grana alluded to this already, is really critical in uh, helping to determine the entirety of the patient's treatment plan going beyond uh, the surgical management. So we're going to get back to that third principle of the staging of the cancer by checking the lymph nodes in a couple of minutes. Let's now just focus on those first two principles and how those principles guide the surgical treatment planning for the breast itself. Well, mastectomy, of course, is the oldest form of treatment for breast cancer, and when we do a mastectomy, we are basically taking care of those first two principles in one fell swoop. For those patients who need to have a mastectomy because of features related to the pattern of their breast cancer, or for a patient that simply chooses to have a mastectomy because of a personal preference, in either of those circumstances, we always want to make sure that the patient avails herself of any breast reconstruction options for which she might be a candidate for. We prefer to do breast reconstruction at the same time that a mastectomy is being performed, and this is what we call immediate reconstruction. But the door is never closed to reconstruction, and some patients will have the mastectomy surgery and then return to the operating room months or even years later to have delayed breast reconstruction. By federal mandate, by federal law, patients' insurance policy coverers are mandated to cover any breast reconstruction or breast revision surgery that is uh, requested by the patient even years after the cancer diagnosis and the initial cancer treatment. Some reconstruction involves implants. Other reconstruction involves using the patient's own body tissue, such as tissue from the, uh, the tummy, and we call that autogenous tissue reconstruction. Now, even in the most talented of plastic surgeon hands, uh, mastectomy and reconstruction is never going to be quite the same as the woman being able to keep her own breast. And so we have come up with alternatives to the mastectomy approach, and that approach is the breast-conserving or breast-sparing approach to breast cancer management. When we perform the breast-conserving surgical approach for cancers that are early detected, we have to perform the lumpectomy to get rid of the cancerous growth, addressing that first principle, and then we rely upon radiation treatments that are delivered to the breast after the lumpectomy, and radiation is very, very effective at killing those microscopic cancer cells hiding in the breast after that lumpectomy. So the breast-conserving surgery is a terrific alternative option uh, compared to mastectomy because it does allow the patient to save her breast. But unfortunately, not every patient will be an ideal candidate to have breast-conserving surgery. Some patients have medical conditions, making them uh, have contraindications to the radiation treatments. Some patients have mammographic findings indicating that their disease would be poorly controlled by radiation after a lumpectomy. And some patients, for cosmetic reasons, a lumpectomy and radiation will not work out very well. For example, a patient that has a relatively large or bulky tumor and a relatively small breast, by the time you do a lumpectomy and then give radiation to the breast, which can result in some scarring and shrinkage of the breast, that patient might end up with a lot of asymmetry and the treated breast looking much smaller than the opposite breast. But ultimately, the patient has to decide what cosmetic result she is comfortable accepting. And as surgeons, we have to guide our patients regarding what the likely cosmetic appearance will be for the patient if she does pursue breast-conserving surgery.
Now, it's important for patients to remember that survival is exactly the same regardless of whether the patient goes the breast conserving surgical approach or the mastectomy approach. And this is because of the fact that the life-threatening potential of breast cancer is related to the biology of the cancer and it's related to the inherent nature or aggressiveness of the cancer and whether or not that cancer has the inherent capacity to be hiding in other organs. This is what we call micrometastatic disease. Micrometastatic disease can potentially be the life-threatening aspect of that woman's breast cancer but micrometastatic disease will usually be invisible on CAT scans or bone scans, but it's important to get as many clues as possible regarding whether or not micrometastases are present because we can treat these micrometastatic lesions with medical treatments, such as the medical treatments that you heard Dr. Grana discuss. These medical treatments, sometimes in the form of chemotherapy, sometimes in the form of special hormonally active cancer-fighting pills, these treatments circulate throughout the body, and they're very good at killing those cancer cells hiding in other organs and making the patient live longer. Now, this is where we get back to the third principle of staging the cancer, because checking those lymph nodes is a critical, essential way of identifying the patients whose micrometastatic disease will require chemotherapy for treatment. So, we don't want to give these medical treatments to all patients. We want to reserve them for where the, the, these treatments are going to be most effective. Checking the lymph nodes and identifying cancer cells hiding in the lymph nodes is one of the most powerful maneuvers to identify a patient that will benefit from chemotherapy treatments. So the lymph node information, again, is going to be necessary regardless of whether the patient has the mastectomy surgery or the lumpectomy surgery and the lymph node information is added to the information that we get from the biomarkers and from some of these gene expression profiles to identify whether or not a patient will benefit from chemotherapy treatments. Historically, we used to check the lymph nodes by doing an operation called an axillary lymph node dissection, where we basically surgically removed the entire fat pad of the underarm. We try to avoid that axillary lymph node dissection if we can, because that's the operation that can leave women at risk for a problem called lymphedema, where they can develop a tendency to have swelling in the arm on that side. One important way to avoid that axillary lymph node dissection is by focusing on removing just the most important lymph nodes that are responsible for draining that woman's breast and therefore her breast cancer. And this is the technology that we call lymphatic mapping and sentinel lymph node biopsy. With the sentinel lymph node biopsy, we remove just those most important lymph nodes, and if those sentinel nodes are negative, then we don't need to remove other lymph nodes of the underarm, and that woman is generally going to be spared the risk of experiencing lymphedema. So the lymph node surgery is necessary for staging, regardless of whether the patient has the mastectomy or the lumpectomy. Recommendations regarding whether or not chemotherapy will be indicated is going to be the same regardless of whether the woman chooses breast-saving surgery or mastectomy. And survival, again, is equivalent regardless of the mastectomy or the breast-conserving surgery choice. So all of those things being equal, we, of course, prefer to do less disfiguring surgery, and we prefer, whenever possible, to offer patients the breast-saving surgery. 
But in the United States, we are seeing an increasing number of women who have a small early-stage breast cancer on one side who are choosing to undergo the double mastectomy or the bilateral mastectomy. And sometimes this is a purely personally driven choice because a woman wants to reduce to the greatest extent possible her chances of ever getting a completely new cancer in the future. And the double mastectomy will reduce those chances, but it doesn't eliminate it. You can have microscopic amounts of cancer hiding in the skin or in the underarm, and so it's unusual to get a new cancer after a double mastectomy, but it can happen. And most importantly, the woman who chooses to undergo double mastectomy when she has only one known cancer, that woman needs to understand that she does not have a survival advantage and undergoing the double mastectomy does not help her avoid chemotherapy. Those issues, the survival and whether or not she needs chemotherapy for her cancer, are going to be related to the aggressiveness of that very first cancer that is identified and that requires treatment. So in closing, I want to stress that surgical decisions are intensely personal choices. The oncology team will provide guidance regarding the options that seem to be safest for individual patients. But at the end of the day, many of our patients will have to choose their own path based upon their own preferences and based upon their feelings about uh, extensive types of surgery. But we do have some wonderful clinical trials that are ongoing that will hopefully allow us to improve the number of patients that are eligible for breast-saving approaches, clinical trials that are investigating newer reconstruction options, and many clinical trials that are evaluating novel preoperative chemotherapy approaches and preoperative targeted therapy approaches both of these strategies also improving the number of patients that can undergo breast-sparing surgery. And so I'll close there, but I do thank everybody for their time and attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Newman. That was really wonderful, extraordinary as always, and uh, just very informative, I think, for everyone to understand um, the role of surgery, the types of surgery, when they're indicated, um, the role of personal choice, and then, of course, the importance of clinical trials. So just a wonderful presentation. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Heather MacArthur. Dr. MacArthur is with the Samuel Ocean Comprehensive Cancer Institute. She is Medical Director, Breast Oncology, Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. And Dr. MacArthur is going to address the role of diagnostic testing or making more informed decisions about your treatment options new treatment approaches, and guidelines to communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. MacArthur. Wonderful. Thank you so much for including me in this program. I'm first going to start off by talking about the role of diagnostic testing, and this is a huge uh, topic, so I'll go through some imaging and then some biologic considerations. I thought it was important to first talk about um, uh, imaging in in the role of diagnosis, and certainly mammogram remains the standard of care. Uh, as many of you are probably aware, there's been some discussion around how frequently mammograms need to be done, um, and there have been some recommendations for mammograms to be completed every two years, although I think that most people in the oncology community are still performing annual mammograms. There have also been some discussions about 
when uh, screening mammograms should start, specifically at what age, um, and certainly the uptake is greatest at, at age greater than 50, although, again, most people in the community start uh, screening mammograms at age 40. It's interesting because there are new technologies, including 3D mammograms um, and other complementary imaging techniques, such as ultrasound and uh, um, and MRI, and uh, it may be that when an abnormality is detected on a routine screening mammogram, that additional diagnostic mammograms will be performed in conjunction with one of those other imaging modalities. One of the issues that we face with our improved technologies is that we identify more early stage uh, breast cancers and more DCIS potentially, and what are the implications of identifying more of those cases? Because certainly not all um, low-grade lesions will evolve into invasive cancer. So um, trying to tailor these recommendations, and this is where biology becomes important because I think that this will inform uh, future strategies. So that takes us into uh, uh, biology and, and diagnosis of breast cancer. So when a breast biopsy is performed to confirm breast cancer standard uh, marker evaluation includes estrogen receptor status, looking at progesterone receptor status, so the two hormone receptors, and then the protein that we've already heard about, uh, HER2, which is present in the minority of breast cancers, about 20 to 25%. Increasingly, we're seeing on our reports, and not all centers may be doing this, but at our center at Cedars-Sinai, we are routinely evaluating for KI-67, which is a biologic marker of proliferation or an indicator of how quickly cells are growing and dividing. Uh, there's a lot of research work ongoing around KI-67. Matt Ellis, for example, is um, leading the field in evaluating how KI-67 changes in response to specific preoperative treatment strategies, and I suspect that KI-67 will consequently play a, a, an increasingly important role in um, diagnosis and in, um, in developing treatment strategies. We've already heard about Oncotype DX and Mammoprint. So understanding the biology of disease is much more important than um, staging. Staging was based on tumor size, nodal involvement in the presence or absence of distant metastases. However, we know that not all two-centimeter node-negative breast cancers are created equal. Some are very slow-growing and some are very fast-growing, and so it's critically important that we understand the biology of the disease so we can understand not only the natural history, but also prescribe the most biologically appropriate therapies. And so I think in the years to come, uh, we've already identified these subtypes within each group, within the hormone receptor positive, triple negative, and HER2 positive groups. But I think you'll hear more about these so-called intrinsic subtypes um, as we increasingly tailor our therapies to um, more and more unique biologic features. I also just wanted to touch on, although this doesn't um, fold into diagnostic testing, but I think it's an important question that comes up time and again. What do we do after a diagnosis? How do you know if treatment has been successful? And 
oftentimes when we give systemic therapy, we don't have any body imaging or circulating lab markers that tell us whether cells have escaped and uh, present risk of developing distant metastases. So we tend to treat a lot of women because we know that overall the numbers look better, but we don't know in individuals who's benefiting. It's sort of similar to the fluoride example, putting fluoride in the water. We know that fewer kids have cavities overall, but we don't know specifically which children are benefiting. So we treat a lot of people with systemic therapy um, because the population is better overall, but ideally we would like to um, get to a place where we can more definitively determine whether cells have escaped and pose risk for distant metastases. And so there's a lot of work um, going into circulating tumor cells, for example, or liquid biopsies to see if we can identify um, patients who are at increased risk of uh, having cells escape from the primary tumor. Um, Next, moving on to new treatment approaches. When I think about new treatment approaches, I generally think in terms of breast cancer subtype, so hormone receptor positive versus HER2 positive versus triple negative breast cancer, although I've just pointed out that this is sort of a superficial category strategy as we understand uh, individualized medicine and subtypes more, but it's a important or a, um, at least a starting point for thinking about new approaches. So starting with ER-positive disease, probably the biggest story in that field at the moment has been with a class of drugs called CDK4-6 inhibitors. These drugs, when combined with hormone therapies such as aromatase inhibitors and fulvestrin in the metastatic setting, have doubled progression-free survival. So the time that a person on, is on one of their early lines of hormone therapy, it's doubled the time that they've been on that hormone therapy, which is probably one of the most impactful changes that we've seen um, in ER-positive disease in recent years. Um, it has not yet translated into overall survival benefits, but a dramatic improvement in progression-free survival. And for that reason, there's been tremendous interest in looking at these medications earlier on, so in the early stage setting. So there are a number of trials ongoing that are looking at adding a CDK4-6 inhibitor to uh, aromatase inhibitors in the adjuvant setting. And one of those studies, for example, is the PALIS study where women being treated with hormone therapy are randomized to receive one of these medications, uh, palbocyclib, versus, or, uh, or, or not. Um, so it will be interesting to see if the improvements seen in the metastatic setting translate into the early stage setting and confer improvements in cure in that setting. So I think many of us are excited about these adjuvant trials of CDK4-6 inhibitors. Moving on to the next uh, tumor type, HER2-positive disease. So um, the most successful stories in drug development over the last 10 to 15 years has been in the field of HER2-positive disease um, with the successful drug development first of trastuzumab or Herceptin. Um, and there have been further drugs developed targeting her 2 um, small molecules, and most recently, another antibody. Herceptin is also an antibody. So this uh, newer antibody, pertuzumab or perjeta, 
demonstrated overall survival benefits in the metastatic setting when combined with chemotherapy and trastuzumab. Also, when combined with chemotherapy and trastuzumab in the preoperative setting, translated in approximately 17% improvements in the ability to achieve what we call a pathologic complete response, which is when the pathologist looks at the surgical specimen and no longer sees any uh, tumor cells within the original tumor bed. So again, an improvement in overall survival in the metastatic setting and a significant improvement rather in pathologic complete response rates in the neoadjuvant or preoperative setting. And so there has been tremendous interest in looking at this drug in the adjuvant setting or after surgery. So there was a study that was recently reported a couple weeks ago at uh, the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting looking at the addition of pertuzumab for one year to chemotherapy uh, with trastuzumab. So women were randomized to get standard of care chemotherapy with trastuzumab plus or minus pertuzumab. And as I said, those results were recently presented. It's interesting to note that the control arm in that study, the women who got Herceptin or trastuzumab alone, um, did better than was, accept- than was expected. So that was good news for patients. Um, but made it more difficult for the investigators to demonstrate an improvement. They demonstrated an overall improvement in invasive disease-free survival, so recurrence of breast cancer in the breast or at distant sites, by approximately 1%. So follow-up continues its early data, um, but a modest improvement overall. They showed that benefits were more pronounced in women who had higher risk disease, particularly node-positive, HER2-positive breast cancer, and potentially uh, estrogen receptor-negative breast cancer. So that would be a strategy that one might consider for a higher-risk adjuvant therapy strategy. The third category of tumor types to think about is triple negative breast cancer. So that's when the estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and HER2 are all negative. There have been a few innovations in that space in recent years. Um, One of them has been the move to neoadjuvant or preoperative chemotherapy administration. So we know from older studies that women do just as well if you give chemotherapy before or after surgery. So it's very reasonable to give chemotherapy before surgery and evaluate the response to that chemotherapy. There was a study that was presented last year and reported in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine recently called CREATE-X, which randomized women who had residual disease after preoperative chemotherapy, so women who did not have a complete response to preoperative chemotherapy, and randomized those women to receive uh, capecitabine, uh, an oral form of chemotherapy for six months versus not, and demonstrated an overall survival benefit with the additional chemotherapy. And so that's influenced practice. Uh, Another important field um, of research has been immune therapy. So immune therapies 
uh, have conferred impressive results in many tumor types, such as melanoma and non-small cell lung cancer and others. So we've been very interested in understanding how we can harness the immune system in breast cancer. There have been several studies reported in breast cancer over the last couple of years looking at drugs that modulate the immune system and um, have demonstrated impressive responses, particularly early on in metastatic disease and particularly in triple negative breast cancer. So now there are now international studies combining immune therapy strategies with conventional chemotherapy, both in the preoperative setting and in the postoperative or adjuvant setting. And it's thought that when immune therapies are administered early on in their disease, they are more likely to be able to generate tumor-specific responses. And one of the hallmarks of immune therapy is that when tumor-specific immune responses occur, that they are durable. And that is potentially a mechanism to achieving cure. So those are overarching uh, views of probably the highlights of the new treatment approaches. With respect to the last category, guidelines for communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. This is obviously a really important area. Um, you, one often has limited amount of time with your physician, a 20-minute appointment potentially, and there may be many, many issues that need to be covered in that time. So breast cancer care is an increasingly a multidisciplinary effort that often involves a dietitian and integrative medicine person, social worker, and many others. And I think that reflects the um, recognition that uh, communication about all aspects, drug and cancer and survivorship issues, need to be um, addressed. One of the initiatives that we have at our center is a nurse navigator program. So someone who, is a, who has a nursing background that partners with you as you move through the system, chemotherapy to surgery to radiation, and is able to be sort of your touchstone um, in um, in getting connected with the right people that you need at the right time. So I'm really looking forward to piloting that effort here, and I know that a lot of other centers have adopted a similar program. And so I guess I'll stop there. Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. MacArthur. That was incredibly informative and lots of information, very comprehensive, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, um, so thank you. Um, and our next speaker is uh, Ms. Stacey Lewis. Ms. Lewis is an oncology social worker, and she's our Women's Cancer Program Coordinator here at Cancer Care. Ms. Lewis will address Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Ms. Lewis. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. I'm very excited to be part of this program today. I wanted to talk a little bit about the importance of creating your support network as part of your care and how cancer care can be a part of that network for you. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Our programs include individual counseling, which we offer face-to-face -face in our New York City area, as well as over the telephone nationwide, support groups, online support groups, educational programs, practical help, assistance navigating the healthcare system, as well as some limited financial and copay assistance. All of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer 
impacts the person as well as his or her family and friends. We are trained to help patients and their support networks tackle the problems that accompany this disease, such as financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and of course, the psychological impact. Adjusting to and finding ways of coping with your diagnosis in all of the areas that I mentioned is an integral part of your healing process. As you may know, cancer impacts not just the patient, but the entire family. Asking for help, whether you are in treatment, a caregiver, or a loved one, by joining a support group or seeking counseling, contacting a social worker, these are signs of strength. You do not have to walk this path alone. Joining a support group can be a way to connect with others who are going through similar situations and are likely experiencing similar problems. Individual counseling can provide a space that is yours to voice any concerns and navigate any of the issues I mentioned earlier. Oftentimes, these connections can help lessen the isolation that many people in cancer treatment experience, as well as their loved ones. Feeling well emotionally can help you better deal with your diagnosis and treatment. I wanted to mention on this call specifically that we are currently running multiple online support groups for women with breast cancer, and those also include spe specific groups for triple negative subtype breast cancer, as well as metastatic breast cancer. And again, we provide these groups to patients and caregivers online, face-to-face -face in our New York City area, as well as over the phone. If you're interested in any of our services, please consider calling our Hope Line at 800-813-4673 or visit our website, which is cancercare.org. Our website is very comprehensive, and you can find a lot of information not only on our support services, uh, but also about our community programs, your diagnosis, treatment, and ways of coping as you move forward. And on our website, you can also register for any future Connect Education workshops and those online support groups that I mentioned. So we've learned a lot from today's program about the medical updates, and it's a lot of information to digest. Our social workers can help you understand what all this may mean for you and your loved ones. If you have any questions about today's workshop or any of our cancer care services, please don't hesitate to contact us. And in closing, I just wanted to remind everyone that you are not alone and that cancer care can be here to be part of your support network. Thank you so much for your attention and for the opportunity to speak today, Dr. Messner. Uh, thank you so much, Ms. Lewis. That was really wonderful and wonderful resources. So thank you so much. And now we have time for questions. We actually have a lot of time for questions. And our questions are coming in. So we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we don't get you a question at the end of the call, I will let you know how to get your questions answered. So um, I'm going to ask Nicole to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions, and we'll let the questions begin. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web, you may submit a question by clicking Ask a Question. And we have a question in front of our online participants. Actually, and I'm going to give this first question to Dr. Grana. Um, what are the guidelines around testing of family members who may be at risk for breast cancer diagnosis? Um, Dr. Grana, if you could address this question. So ideally... Sure. Ideally, the testing begins with the cancer patient um, because if the cancer patient <clears throat> has a genetic abnormality, you can then go to the additional family members and test them for that same abnormality. Now, when do you test the cancer patient for a genetic abnormality? There are 
published and well-defined criteria that tend to be followed by insurance companies who now provide coverage for genetic testing. For example, breast cancer uh, at a young age, under 45, even if you have no family history. Triple negative breast cancer up to age 60 with no family history. Breast cancer at older ages with a family history, a family history of breast and ovarian, a family history uh, of multiple generations affected, uh, breast cancer and Jewish ancestry. So these uh, are really well publicized and should be accessed, and you can determine whether you should have testing and whether you'll have coverage. And then once your testing is done, that has implications for your family members. Even if you don't have a mutation, uh, your first-degree relatives are at slightly increased risk of breast cancer, and their clinician may make recommendations about better screening and some prevention strategies with tamoxifen or Evista or an aromatase inhibitor to lower risk. So family members should be attuned to these issues and should be seeking input. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, uh, Dr. Grana, that was outstanding. And we have another question, actually, for um, for Dr. MacArthur um, and for online participants. So what do you think about the breast MRI, and what is the latest on needles in the affected arm? Well, we... We try to avoid needles in the affected arm whenever possible and blood pressure in the affected arm whenever possible because we want to minimize the risk of um, of lymphedema in women who have nodes removed on that side. Um, so we, whenever possible, we try to favor the other arm. With respect to breast MRI, it's typically... Um, Reserved as a screening tool for women who are at high, uh, higher risk of disease, such as those with BRCA mutations or strong family history, and that may be implemented at a younger age in those higher risk populations because mammogram uh, can be difficult to, um, to interpret in young women who have dense breast tissue. Um, MRI as a diagnostic tool or as a surgical planning tool, I think is um, is is often used at the treating at the treating surgeon's discretion um, if lumpectomy is planned. Typically, um, there was some interesting. I'm not a surgeon. I'm a medical oncologist, but there was some interesting data that was presented by Dr. Monica Morrow of Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, around um, at ASCO, rather, um, and she presented data around change in surgical practice patterns based on multidisciplinary surgical and radiation oncology guidelines that were developed in 2013, which defined negative margins. And she showed that the dissemination of these guidelines um, actually influenced surgical practice and showed that lumpectomy rates increased, um, mastectomy rates decreased, um, which was uh, appropriate for um, for uh, this population um, because mastectomy rates had been increasing um, when lumpectomy is a very um, appropriate strategy for many of these women. And they also showed that um, surgeons who favored axillary dissection, so more lymph nodes removed, also preferred wide margins. So there was a more overall aggressive surgical approach. But physicians, surgeons who do high volumes of cases were more likely to adhere with these 
um, margin guidelines and remove fewer lymph nodes. Um, so I thought that was interesting data reflecting change in surgical practice. Excellent. And we have another question for you, Dr. MacArthur, um, and some of our online participants. What are the long-term health benefits versus risks of taking letrozole for stage 1B breast cancer? I have osteopenia and high cholesterol, but otherwise very fit and healthy. If you could just address this in a general way, and then we'll ask our, our, the, uh, our online questioner to take that back to their treating healthcare team, of course. Sure. One of the um, one of the primary concerns about aromatase inhibitors are, of course, the effect on uh, bone density, as you've alluded to already. Um, it's relatively unusual to move from one bone density category to another, in other words, from osteopenia to osteoporosis. So for the most part, people um, have changes in bone density that, that are within the same category. Um, that may be less relevant, certainly in in um, higher risk hormone receptor positive situations because there is a growing body of data indicating that bone strengthening medications not only prevent bone fractures, but also prevent breast cancer recurrence. So there's been a shift in practice, at least in women with higher risk ER positive disease, to um, add in bone strengthening medications uh, regardless of bone density, because of the breast cancer-specific benefits. And this will be our last late-breaking question um, for uh, Dr. MacArthur. Um, so the question is, um, I have a strong family history of breast cancer on my paternal side. My grandmother, her, and two of her sisters passed away from the disease, and their daughters were also diagnosed. I am only 30 years old, but had a breast reduction at age 17, but my family history still worries me. I feel my PCP, HCPs brush me off due to my age and the fact the history is on my paternal side, not my maternal side. And last, last part of this, um, I have found PubMed articles stating that there can be links of genetic breast cancer inherited via the paternal side. Is, do you agree or is this true? And, and so, if, again, it's a very, a very excellent and complicated question. And Dr. MacArthur, if you could address this again in a general way, and we'll mm -hmm. invite our uh, online participant to take that question to the treating healthcare team. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, identifying a, a mutation that predisposes to um, breast cancer is, is critically important because of the implications for uh, risk-reducing procedures such as mastectomy and oophorectomy. Um, it would be important to know if anyone in the family had previously had testing because that would, of course, influence um, testing decisions for um, next generations. Um, a lot of institutions have high-risk screening programs um, and have counselors that will review your specific family history and can make recommendations accordingly. Um, and if you qualify, you um, would qualify not just for testing, but also potentially uh, other high-risk interventions like early MRI, for example. So it would be worthwhile to see if the institution near you has such a high-risk screening program. Excellent. And um, can you just say a bit more about those, those settings in terms of the role of genetic counselors and others who actually play an important role in or the whole team that's often in those high-risk screening um, clinics? That, that's helpful, I think, maybe for the audience to know. Right, so often the first step 
um, before undergoing testing is actually the counseling step, and that's critically important because you want to understand what the implications are of any given result before you decide to per- pursue testing or not and the implications for yourself and for your relatives and and especially potential offspring. So I think getting that information is critically important. It's the same as going for a diagnostic test, going for a PET scan and not thinking about what you're going to do with that information and then you you find some anomaly and you're forced to make a decision about it. I'd rather think up front about how I'm going to use that information and that's why I think it's similarly in the genetic counseling um, arena, I think it's really important to get that information up front so that you understand very specifically what the downstream implications are. So genetic counselors are important um, are important um, collaborators and colleagues for for us and in any um, breast cancer dedicated program. Excellent. Well, I actually um, want to thank all of our speakers, um, and I actually. I um, want to thank Dr. MacArthur as well for taking many of these questions, and I want to thank all of you who asked such great questions as well. And this has been um, rather an extraordinary call with such really amazing speakers as well as great questions that really enhanced our call today, very thoughtful, very um, very good questions. And there are many of you on the call who I know didn't get a chance to ask your questions. So as we conclude the program today, I don't want to leave that part out. So. Um, you will be getting an evaluation from us within a day or two of the program. And in that evaluation, there will be a whole listing of um, organizations that can be of help to you. However, for those of you who still have medical questions, of course your healthcare team is always your very best guide. Um, They know you best. They know all the details of your situation. But I know that many of you do like to get information from other sources. So on the program today, we have many breast cancer organizations, and we'll be sending you their email addresses and phone numbers if you wish to contact them. And the other place I recommend that people call is the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237 or visiting their website at www.cancer.gov. They do have a live chat feature that is available um, to you and their information specialist will, you can post your question and they will address it and you can really have a chat conversation with them and get as much information as you can and you can then take that back to your treating healthcare team. Um, if, however, you wish to get any sort of supportive counseling services from cancer care or financial or practical assistance or actually um, a telephone or online support group or one of our programs here in terms of these workshops that we're doing, many of these, um, we'll have many more of them, of course, um, and or if you wish to... Um, access our publications or our website, then I would suggest you go ahead and contact Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Perhaps most importantly, um, I, I don't want anyone to leave this call feeling that you're alone in coping with early-stage breast cancer or any type of cancer. We want you to know that there are many organizations out there which Cancer Care is, is one of them and a, and a very accessible organization to contact. And that in those moments, or even sometimes when you're not feeling alone, when you're just feeling like you just need someone to talk to, this is a a wonderful organization to call. We have a large staff of oncology social workers, and they're here to talk to you. And, of course, never to forget your treating healthcare team, because I think as many of our speakers have said, they do want to speak to you about your concerns, and you do need to tell them what your concerns are so they will know and understand what your particular issues are. So that's, that's also very important as well. 
So um, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and um, I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.